Welcome back, you fucking film holes. I'm Trevor. And I'm Raul, you fucking filmalites. Sounds like a like a biblical like tribe or something. Yeah. Every week we watch a movie. And this week is no exception. What did we watch this week, Trevor? El Topo, translated as the mole. Mm-hmm. For all you non-Spanish speakers out there. Yep. And this one's kind of a. I feel like we try to keep a pretty diverse set of movies that we've watched, but even this one's even more out there. Yeah. El Topo is in a category of its own, but definitely is in the more experimental straight like art movie category than anything else we've watched yeah definitely and and maybe we should put more effort this week instead of giving like a synopsis which we can try to do uh Mm -hmm. maybe just give a little more context to the movie itself like yeah when it was made who made it probably the best place to start there is saying who the director and star is which is alejandro jodorowsky the man uh the legend would you call this movie experimental or would you call it something else? I would definitely call it experimental. Okay. I would agree. I just didn't know if there was a more precise word to use. You would know more than I do, but it definitely like fits within that camp of film that is meant to be just like off the walls, crazy, non-commercial. Mm-hmm. For that reason, I think it's it's a very early entry into these types of movies and so therefore is pretty iconic. Yeah, yeah. The trailer has a really nice catchphrase that I like that they use that's like like the original midnight movie. I mean, this came out mm-hmm. in 1970. Define for our listeners what a, bin, a midnight movie is. I don't even know. Why do they call it midnight movies? I don't know. I was asking so you would help me. <laughs> like, I assume, like, it's this and Eraserhead is another one of, like, the highly cited so-called midnight movies. I assume that in that time period that they used to show crazy art films at night in movie theaters. Let's see. That's what I've gathered. Wikipedia says the term midnight movie is rooted in the practice that emerged in the 1950s of local television stations around the United States airing low budget genre films as late night programming, often with a host delivering ironic asides. As a cinematic phenomenon, the midnight screening of offbeat movies began in the early 1970s in a few urban centers, particularly in New York, with screenings of El Topo at the Align Theater, eventually spreading across the country. The screening of non-mainstream pictures at midnight was aimed at building a cult audience, encouraging repeat viewing and social interaction in what was originally a counterculture setting. Wow. So, so there you Sounds go. Sounds like something that would have been pretty cool to go to at the time. Totally. We don't have anything that cool now. No, no. I mean, all of our weirdness is just like, it's mainstream now. It's out in the open. Yeah. We don't have to huddle. It's hard It's hard to be truly cool anymore with the internet, right? I know. Like every version of cool is so large. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I just said. Yeah, for okay. sure. <laughs> like the term like subculture used to signify a group of people like relatively small compared to the population that had like niche interests. Now Mm. our entire country is just composed of sizable subcultural groups. Totally. Yeah. Which is all to say that this movie to spin it all back around to El Topo Mm -hmm. is not something that would necessarily appeal to a large audience just because of how weird it is. Right. I think that like when I watch this movie, I'm torn between like accepting it as a purely 
experimental film with a, with a lot of things that don't make a lot of sense and are is more art than story. So I I get torn between accepting it as that and then just thinking it's too smart for me. Uh-huh. Like I just am incapable of getting it. That's something that we can talk about a little bit more because I have like no issue with like super weird abstract film and imagery. It's mm-hmm. like that stuff's cool to look at. Mm-hmm. But this movie kind of like begs to be analyzed and and it's completely impenetrable to me we can try to talk about some of the stuff they that they show us and try to maybe try to figure out what they were trying to say but yeah all in all it's hard that would be a fun experiment and i think that like based on the research that i've done about this movie and you know based on like how alejandro talks about this movie in public from what i've seen it doesn't necessarily sound like there is a right or wrong answer in the analysis of some of that imagery Mm mm-hmm like his whole thesis behind the movie is he wants to expand the mind of the person watching it. At least that's how he's described like other movies that he's made. And it doesn't necessarily need to line up with what he intended it to be mm-hmm. from a, a meaning perspective. Yeah. Exactly with the person who's watching it. It just is supposed to evoke something, some sort of contemplation in the viewer. And I don't think that it's a specific one, according to Alejandro. We should say here that Alejandro is like very influenced and really into spirituality, in particular, you know, Eastern meditations and those kinds of traditions. Mm -hmm. He's generally really into religion in general. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of religious iconography in this movie. (laughs) I love how you said that. He's really into religion. Really into religions. You guys into religion? What do you guys think about religion? It's like a a comedian's like opening bit. What do you What do you guys think of religion? Huh. But like jokes aside, like I generally don't like religious imagery in the movies that I watch just because I'm not religious myself. And so I find it boring. Boring. Okay. Yeah. Like stuff like, uh, what was that movie that came out about the devil child? The Omen? Yeah. The Omen. Like wait, the old, the original Omen? Either one. I saw the new one. Okay. But like that kind of stuff, I'm just like, I don't care. Okay. But this is an exception. I think it might be an exception. Yeah. Okay. Why do you think that? Why is it an exception? Only because it's, like, weird enough to still be interesting. Mm -hmm. I'm interested as to why you find religious imagery, like, by default, like, kind of uninteresting. Even though you're not religious, I think it's... I mean, I think that's the whole... That's, like, the only reason. It's just, like, how interested would you be in a movie that... In, like, a film that was leaning really heavily on some other cultural tradition that you're not familiar with? Like science. Or, like... (laughs) I was like, I was trying to think of something that you could relate to, but I couldn't. And it's just like images of like molecules. Images of molecules. Ooh. Which is, which is basically like what we saw in Primer. Now we're talking. You're like the imagery of like the lab Ooh. is so realistic and like all the labels are real. That's even, that's like what Kartik said anyways. And I'm just like, it looks like just a fucking room. To that me. might actually be a pretty good like counter example. Like I nerd out all over that stuff, but other people might be like, um, like, I don't care that this is, like, supposedly a realistic portrayal of, you know, mm-hmm. amateur scientists doing science, or I don't really care that the dialogue sounds, like, realistic. Mm-hmm. People might just overlook that. Right. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, that's kind of, I, I think that what you just said is, like, a good way of summing up how I felt about Primer. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I mean, that's not entirely true, but that is what you just said is closer to like my feeling about primer than, than yours. Ah, interesting. 
Okay, so what were we talking about with El Topo? Uh, yeah, we're just That's trying to get a get a handle on this person that made this movie. I mean, yeah, okay. The director, I think, is probably like more interesting than the art he makes. Yeah, that should kind of be the case with like most artists, right? Mm-hmm. You're more interested in the mind that created something really thought provoking than you are the thing itself. Yeah. And like, what a mind! Like this guy is. Just the little that I know about him and his history and the stuff he's done, he's just so interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Why? Top five reasons we love Yodorowsky. Ready, set, go. He likes tarot. The accent. He likes Buddhism. He almost directed uh, a Dune movie. He failed to direct the Dune movie. That's like another thing. That's <laughs> like, like another top five thing. And then they made a really cool documentary about it. That's another one. Mm-hmm. He acts in all his movies. How about that? Okay. He yeah. is like a complete auteur. Like he is the, he conceives of the movie, writes it, directs it, stars in it, puts his like mm-hmm. family inside of it. Yeah. I guess that's one aspect about his movies that they, they seem very much like like his own little personal projects. Like modern movies can be so big and have so many people involved. Mm-hmm. But his seem kind of like small and intimate in comparison. This has always been the reason that I really enjoy auteurs as directors as opposed to the other kind of main way of doing movies, which is, you know, you've got influence from the writers and then you've got influence from like the studio for like what would sell the most for like that particular season or year or whatever and the director is really just kind of one cog in that machine whereas auteurs like it's a good auteurs anyways the films are like a direct result of a very intimate feeling that they have about something it's a very direct result of their artistic expression and i feel like whenever you do that with any sort of art, like you're just going to get a more pure piece of art. Right. Right. Like art at its core, I think is much more focused and can't necessarily be made up of a huge collaborative. Maybe that's not a universal truth, but that's in my own experience. I've always enjoyed art. That's been done like that more. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that the best way to sum up like who Yodorowsky is, is he's a guy who's dabbled in like, Various types of like spirituality and religion is tried to understand them. A student of philosophy, I would imagine, is into like the mystic arts. He like is a self-proclaimed psychic magician, which is something that he made up, I guess. Yeah, presumably. (laughs) And I don't really, I don't really understand what that is supposed to mean, but it sounds cool. There's like in a video that we watched about him, there's this (laughs) shot of him like holding up these like tarot cards and tarot cards always, you know, they look how they look. They look like a something you would see in a, a fortune teller's office. So they look kind of funny and weird. And he's, like, holding them right up to the camera lens and, like, kind of peeking out, like, between the cards. And I think that if you can imagine that, that would hopefully give you some insight to the type of dude we're dealing with here. Yeah. No doubt has done a lot of hallucinogenic drugs. For sure. In his heyday. That should not go without mention. Yeah. Who wasn't doing drugs back then? Hallucinogenic drugs. It was the really. 70s, you know? Yeah. When did El Topo come out? 70. Oh, okay. So really it was the 60s. They were making that movie during the 60s. The 70s is the cutoff. 70s are really, you know, it can just be thought of as an extension of the 60s. There's the late 60s. 
1970 through 1975, late 60s. They're the less cool 60s. Yeah, yeah. Which is to say sort of like the cultural place that this movie was in is definitely like in that 60s countercultural hippie movement. Yeah. Lots of drugs, lots of spirituality, that kind of thing. Lots of people getting weird and Mm -hmm. naked. There's no shortage of nudity or weirdness in this movie. So let's get into it. Do you want to describe the plot? Do you think it's important? We can try. I mean, this might just be a good springboard to talk about, you know, scenes and just try to make sure we maybe understand what's happening. So, like, the movie takes place mostly in a desert. We should say it's, like, mainly presents itself as a something that takes place in, like, the Old West. Sure, old, sure. Old-timey like like West. Like a Western. Yeah. Although it is, like, you know, a movie that was made in Mexico, and so this is a Spanish-language film, it should be said. Right. So I'm not sure how much, like, the, the cowboy kind of motif translates south of the border mm-hmm. i kind of think of that more in the tradition of like mexican rancheros they're called uh-huh which is I just think of like the same thing as like westerns we, sh- we should say that like raul is mexican scottish this this is in <laughs> mexican scottish <laughs> half half so he's he's the authority on this mm-hmm. raul himself is a ranchero yes <laughs> yeah so it is definitely like in that kind of like western tradition I don't think the fact it took place in Mexico takes away from that. I read that it was actually meant to be released and distributed in the U.S. all along. Okay. But the director is like Chilean from birth. I think he lived and grew up in Mexico for a large part of his life. That's where he did his art. And so that's where this movie takes place. He started off in the circus too, right? He was a circus performer, which is, I think, important in like some of his movies. Mm Mm-hmm. From one Q&A that I listened to, it sounded like he made it into a Western because his previous film was like more just kind of run of the mill like art movie, uh-huh. like what he would go on to make in The Holy Mountain. I-, I haven't seen The Holy Mountain, but from what I understood that like that was like the movie he really enjoyed making and he thought uh-huh. like it was a real ex- expression of what he wanted to do, but he made El Topo sort of look and feel like a Western so people would go watch it so he could get money and, like, make more movies. Ah, okay. That was at least, like, how he kind of talked about that in the one Q&A I watched. I believe that. I haven't seen The Holy Mountain either. Going to have to, you know, in the near future. But that definitely seems like the movie that he would wanted to make. I'm going to grab another glass of wine, and then I think that just a quick sort of breakdown of the plot. Yeah. Would be good. In the meantime, I'm going to do a solo show here. So what did I think of El Topo? El Topo is a visionary tale of, of gi- uh, gigantic proportions. Uh, a tale of conceit, visions, and moles. But not just any moles, but the moles that underlie ourselves and our consciousness in the modern day life. El Topo is a film ultimately about fatherhood, about the difficulties of raising children in the modern media landscape. And it's a film about, you know, a lot of stuff. I mean, it's a film that... Oh. What? Hey, Raul, what are you talking about? Hey. What have you, uh, what have you been saying? You know, I've just been laying it down, man. Who, who have you been talking to? The audience. How old is the Buddha? As old as I am. So... El Topo begins like some Westerns where you have like a lone character riding in the desert. 
This one is a little different as you see this uh, mysterious man with no name, kind of archetypal Western character, but he has a naked little boy with him, uh, which is played by Yodorovsky's real son, by the way. And the character in the movie, you find out, is his actual son. Mm-hmm. But right away, it establishes itself as not a normal <laughs> Western movie. I made a joke when we were watching this movie in the opening scene. I said, like, already too weird. I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. Which is a joke because, like, this is only the beginning. Right. And then El Topo finds his way to, we should say El Topo is the main character. Does he have mm-hmm. a real name? I just think he's called El Topo. That's what it is in the credits. So I think yeah. it's just El Topo. So he finds a town where a large massacre has taken place. He learns that this massacre was perpetrated by this villainous character called the Colonel after tracking down some of his lieutenants and killing them. And then after killing or besting the Colonel and castrating the Colonel, he then acquires the company of this young woman who then tells him to go and fight these other gunfighters so he can be the best in the West. Okay, Lady Macbeth. And then uh, after... Going through this sort of tournament style with all of these masters, he becomes the best. And then there's this whole second half of the movie where El Topo has a breakdown, is betrayed, and then he is taken away by this village of people and then wakes up in this cave uh, several years later or like many years later where the people of this cave believe he is their savior. It's like... 20 years later or something right something like that yeah because his his son is an adult okay so 20 years later (laughs) so he's just like meditating in this cave for 20 years unconscious it seems yeah like in a meditative state which it's worth saying that like that is really like not clear as to like what happened the first watch through like i had to kind of retroactively understand what was happening there Uh and then he makes his way out of the cave and then goes to a, a nearby town with his new friend, who is this little person who becomes his lover. And they beg on the street for money so they can eventually go back to where the cave people are and dig them out because they are trapped in this cave. And if that doesn't make any sense, that's fine. And really, there's not much more to say than what I was just saying. He gets the people out. The people are then short, shortly thereafter massacred. And then El Topo goes on a rampage and then massacres the people of the town before finally setting himself on fire vietnamese monk style right um and then the movie ends right i I had this in my notes where the plot itself as a thing is not really something that's worth analyzing because it's extremely basic if you took out all of the the really surreal imagery i think Uh and like how that mixes itself into the story if you just like look at it on paper where it's like he's a gunfighter he fights this guy he fights this guy he wakes up in a cave and then he like the overall bird's eye view right if you just look at it from a kind of plot point perspective it's extremely basic and it doesn't it doesn't really like merit being looked at Mm. so that's all that's worth uh worth saying about the plot so let's introduce our guest here who's done like the (laughs) (laughs) podcast equivalent of just kind of like creeping up on us while we're not looking right yeah like all good gunslingers i came up when we were least expecting it yeah in the middle of the plot synopsis (laughs) so justin is uh, a friend of mine and now a friend of ours because he's on the podcast and that's how it works that's how the rules work Mm -hmm. i hope that's okay raul that's that is acceptable okay 
Justin is a writer. He contributed to our pre-show viewing of this movie where he selected some relevant pieces of video for us to watch in preparation for this movie. How would you describe those things that you pulled from the internet, Justin? Uh, It was pretty basic. I didn't get very deep with it. I wanted to pick a few things that were set in the desert. I wanted to pick a few things that were appropriately trippy or surreal. And uh, maybe some things that showed off some more, I don't know, primitive or basic animal examples of human nature. Okay. Yeah, I think he did a good job. Thank you. Well, that that sounds really highfalutin, but really it was just, you know, Googling like trippy desert shit. And luckily, it's a lot. It's everything that I, I was already familiar with or am a fan of, but it worked yeah. out okay. I appreciate that you included that uh, Tween Picks return nuclear bomb coming off. Oh, yeah. Although Trevor did not put it in the final version. You know, I assume Trevor wouldn't, but I had to. I, I think that's probably uh, one of my all-time favorite pieces of art, which is, yeah, Twin Peaks The Return, Episode 8, where you go inside of an atomic bomb. That's it's great. Fucking wild, but I, that's been my favorite show from like the last several years, and I don't know anybody else who's watched it. Oh, it's great! It's yeah, I get nostalgic for the summer of 2017 because new episodes of Twin Peaks were airing, and I was playing Breath of the Wild for the first time. So I think that's that's where my life is right now, which is oh, wow. Um, wow. I think we're in know. danger of me just talking to you about Twin Peaks for a while, <laughs> so uh. we should just. You cap that off for later. Yeah, for sure. If you could hop off, Trevor, that would be great. <laughs> Man, fuck you guys. <laughs> Why don't you guys just start your own little fucking podcast about <laughs> Twin Peaks? So thanks for that, Justin. Yeah, Ass- thanks for having me. You assholes. <laughs> Making me like fucking talk about both of you in a flattering way now that you threw me under the bus. Uh <laughs> Uh, Trevor, is is Justin the person that you had told me about when you visited last that you told me was interested in in um, Yodorowsky? Probably. I don't remember us talking about Yodorowsky when I was there physically, but Justin is the person who brought Yodorowsky and specifically El Topo and the Holy Mountain to my attention after we saw kind of a subpar horror movie. Okay, because I remember remember when we were in the city and I bought Jodorowsky's like spiritual autobiograph, Ido. Biography. <laughs> That's okay. That's how he would say it. So Biography. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember you sent a picture of me holding it to somebody. Was that you, Justin? Oh yeah, I think it was. That sounds familiar. Was that a? Ah. Uh, what is that? Is that called like dance? Dance of reality or? Oh no, no. It's just a spiritual journey of Andrew mm-hmm. Yodorowsky. Cool. To paint the picture, like I didn't really know who Yodorowsky was prior to any of that. Yeah. Justin just said El Topo, which was a more sticking word for me in my memory than uh, Yodorowsky was. So I think when you held up the book that said El Topo, I'm like, Justin <laughs> Justin will know what this is. Trevor, real quick, though, what was the horror movie that inspired our conversation? Do you remember? Because I'd like to maybe <laughs> tie back a mediocre horror movie to something yeah, like that. Sure. The movie was Gretel and Hansel, which That's I don't right. I don't remember who directed it. Um yeah, that's uh, Oz Perkins directed that. I'd be interested in asking Justin since he's had like a prior history with El Topo. Just can, can you tell us a little bit more about like why you watched it in the first place, and we can get we can dive yeah. right into like what your thoughts are. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I watched it in college, I believe, and I was turned on to it initially because I I knew about Holy Mountain and the 
and I, I had no way to watch it, but the imagery that I'd seen from Holy Mountain was so arresting that I, I wanted to, to seek out this guy's work. And I think this was maybe before the documentary about his his debacle with the Dune adaptation had come out. So oh, okay. um, wild back then. Yeah, it was a while back. It was either before that or before I'd heard of that movie. So he wasn't really on my radar. The Holy Mountain seemed so interesting to me that I found El Topo first and I, I procured it and I watched it, I think, alone in my bedroom in college on a laptop, which is probably the worst way to watch a movie like this because I think it demands <laughs> to be seen on a bigger screen. I'd love to see it at a movie theater. But um, yeah, mm-hmm. so that was my first introduction to it. And it was cool getting to see it again and having my expectations were that I would maybe recognize a little more about it that I didn't first time around. But I have to say it's it's just as impenetrable now as it was then. <laughs> I read a really good article that said something about how trying to properly analyze this film is like every piece of spiritual or religious imagery that's in it and trying to derive meaning is not only like an impossible task but also kind of a thankless one yeah like it it sort of is asking to be analyzed but with not a lot of things to grab onto yeah except for that scene where the uh at the church where they have like the illuminati eyes and then he tears down the curtain and oh my (laughs) god it was christianity the whole time that was a little too like on the nose yeah it's very very scooby-doo Wow. <laughs> well, you know, I I was actually thinking about this today. I was taking a walk and sort of trying to process El Topo. What I came up with was that, you know, I don't know if you know this about, uh, I'll just call him AJ, but he's really into tarot. Yeah. And he, you know, he has his own deck and he does, he's famous for his celebrity tarot readings. Really quickly, um, can we like, as someone who doesn't know a lot about this, can we loosely define tarot? Yeah, sure. Before we get uh, too into that. I don't know if Raul wants to take this, but I, I'm happy. <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, as far as I'm aware, and I think this is just like what everybody knows from pop culture, is that it's like mystics, like maybe reading your future, and they're doing some kind of like card game yeah. that they play with turning of cards and, oh, you've pulled, you know, the, the sinking ship, and that means that you'll die in seven years. Or That is like exactly my understanding of tarot is what Raul just said. And I, I don't think you need to have a deeper understanding to sort of grasp the point I was going to make. But yeah, okay. just, just to, well, it's okay. But just to expand on that a little bit, it is, yeah, in a basic form, it, it's sort of fortune telling. It's sort of peering into someone's, maybe not necessarily their future, but just sort of their general aura or their inner self. And I'm totally pissing in someone's church right now. I'm, I'm really not giving this the proper explanation, but this is just what I know. And I, and I believe tarot is a relatively new form of fortune telling it's not ancient and deep and dark as as people think it is but Mm. anyway he's a he's an avid user of tarot decks which are the primary you know way that you read someone's tarot and i think with tarot it's all very subjective you know it's 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 all symbols and it's how you want to interpret those symbols and i think his movies are a little like that especially el topo where they're full of discrete symbols but I don't know if there's necessarily, you know, a gestalt that you're supposed to take away from it. I don't know if there's a bigger picture. I think mm-hmm. really it's how you end up looking at it and how you, if you want to look at it as one whole message, you can, or you can look at it as, you know, a, a series of discrete events or symbols 
were happenings. Cool. I didn't say a lot there, but I think that's kind of how I look at El Topo. <laughs> Justin is like, you ever watch Pawn Stars when they're like, man, I don't really know much about this object. We're going to call in this this expert that lives down the street. Uh, and they walk in with like a fucking like shark tooth necklace and a safari hat. And they're like, I've been studying this uh, this rare thing for years. That's like what Justin is to our podcast right now. Justin is the the called an expert. This wacky expert that just like walked in and like knows everything about what we're talking about. <laughs> Man, you got it. Yeah, but that's only because you're talking about a very narrow subset of things. Let's not get too too wide with this conversation, or I'm going to quickly look like a moron. Justin, can you explain like the U.S. like tax system to me? just for like a friend just prodding how many things you're an expert on right now buddy i'm explaining tarot to you do you think i know shit about the u.s tax (laughs) i would take that to mean that you know more about the tax system (laughs) so well you know what i guess all that to say that i think i don't know what el topo adds up to but i do know that there's a lot of let's say obscure symbols and i then i think there's a lot of obvious symbols and i think aj is kind of okay with being obvious and obscure at the same time Let's get into it a little bit because I, yeah. I kind of been doing some amateur analyzing of the movie Same. and some of the imagery that I kind of want to like bounce off the wall with you guys. Mm-hmm. Cool. Like it, kind of the overall plot of the movie, bird's eye view of this violent person who is motivated by like sex because like he has the women characters egging him on and like glory. Like he wants to be the best fighter in mm-hmm. this desert. So that's like the first half of the movie and that pretty much accumulates in him sort of not meeting his goal, right? Like at the end, like after he kills the fourth or after the fourth master kills himself, he's essentially denied that victory that he's been seeking the whole time. And then Mm -hmm. that leads to like a lot of contemplation and he reawakens as like a peaceful person and the rest Mm -hmm. of the movie happens. So I don't know. To me, that's just like saying that like violence is not the way, only introspection and meditation can bring you to a place of goodness. But then he gets that whole town killed, so now I don't know what to think. I think that what you're describing, Yodorowsky would accept as an answer. I alluded to this earlier. Like, I don't think that Yodorowsky is as concerned with, like, a very precise interpretation of this movie. Because uh-huh. I think he he himself has a dynamic interpretation of this movie in everything that he makes at least that's been my impression Uh uh-huh what do you think about like the broad strokes that i laid out just like this character that's initially very violent like the the biggest thing that stands out to me in this movie is that transformation that happens at the halfway mark where he changes the way he looks like the clothing changes he has Uh white hair instead of black hair Uh uh-huh and so I don't know. I was just trying to attach some kind of meaning to that transformation. That yeah, went under. I think that that's totally valid. I just won the whole movie, dude. I think it's sub- <laughs> I think it's subjective, like at the end of the day. But I think that what you're saying makes a lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. I don't think that he like on the first viewing. This is my first time seeing this movie. I don't think he struck me as like an overtly like super violent character. Like I think I more closely associated him with just kind of the western idea of like what a hero is supposed to be Mm, yeah that is true Uh, man versus nature all that stuff but i mean there's violence for sure but it it didn't really strike me as like violence is not the way and like you can only be at peace through peace or whatever you were saying i think there's a i struggled with this too and i think it's maybe like a little bit of like justified violence you know or is your hate pure you know to, to pull an old 
quote out. Like, I think it's maybe the, because I think we could all agree that the massacre at the end committed by the gunslinger Mm -hmm. uh, is justified, that he should have killed those townspeople, you know, the people in the cult. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I don't think Jodorowsky is like reveling in that. In fact, I think he recognizes that while it may have been justified, it's still... It's still maybe um, an evil act, mm-hmm. and maybe that's why he self-immolates. I don't know. I, I don't know if he self-immolates because he committed the act or because he he now is achieving his place as like another master. I don't know if I if I can decide yeah. on one. Mm. That's interesting. I do feel like this movie is extraordinarily violent, but in a weird way, it's not as violent as other things that I've seen. I think that Yodorowsky is like described you know the the imagery of blood and like real violence in his movies is something that's like he calls it life he's like i'm giving this movie my life by showing all of the blood and like the realism to it and i guess for me that it 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 doesn't feel like movie violence in that way it just ultimately what i'm getting at is i don't think that he like glorifies violence like other directors do it definitely seems like his use of violence is different than like the way Quentin Tarantino uses right. it. He just thinks it's a load of fun. Right. Tarantino loves all kinds of violence and loves the visual spectacle of them. I think that Yodorowsky is just trying to infuse some sense of drama like with his violence. Definitely edginess, right? Yeah. That's like one of the things that makes this film at the time so controversial and, you know, worthy of attention. Uh-huh. Sure. Do you know, I haven't done any research at all, so it sounds like you guys kind of have. Do you know what his thoughts were on, like, the Western, the Western genre, specifically film? I have no idea. I didn't get too into it, but we talked a little bit about this a second ago, where Yodorowsky is more of just a pure artist. He's not really, like, a traditional filmmaker, as right. I think everybody kind of gets. But uh, he uh, made a first film that was pretty unsuccessful in a... Uh, in Mexico and he wanted to make more movies obviously and so his next movie he was like I'm gonna make a western so then people will come and see it yeah then I can make something that I actually want to make which is the story of how Holy Mountain came to be but from that I would gather that he doesn't care that much about westerns he was just like that's just what's popular yeah he knows what's commercial and what what's funny is he doesn't even attempt to be commercial it goes as far as the genre and otherwise there's literally nothing commercial about el topo no Mm -hmm. it's funny that el topo is like because you said that like that is his most like commercialized movie (laughs) el topo one of like the fucking weirdest movies out there like this is the most sellout movie this guy's ever made (laughs) (laughs) the mainstream non-mainstream crowd it's the most mainstream Within the non-mainstream community. People who are big, like Yodorowsky fans, uh, Yodorowsky fans are probably like, this is his worst work. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, this is when he was a slave to the man. <laughs> El Topo, that's so sophomoric. Right. <laughs> Come back to me when you see the, the dance of life. Well, he says, uh, I, I was listening to an interview uh, between him and Darren Aronofsky. And he, at the time of the interview, which I think was a couple of years ago, he was 88 years old. Wow, um, and he's he's spry. He's he's certainly. I think he'll live to be, uh, you know, well past a hundred. But he says in the in the in the interview that he plans to live twelve more years, so to a hundred, and that he wants to make at least five more movies in that time. So he certainly has, if not a vision, um, a drive. 
Wow. I don't know how recent some of the footage I've seen of him is, but he seems like sharp as a tack, like for how old he is, regardless yeah. of any of that stuff. Definitely. Which is amazing. I think he's immortal. I think that the tarot thing actually like worked out for him and that he actually figured out how to not die. Do you guys think that he was working out some daddy issues with this movie? For himself? <laughs> yeah. I, I know I said that glibly, but I, I'm being serious. And I don't know, I, I haven't read anything about this, but I do know that he had a, a troubled history with his dad. And I feel like that, how okay. the movie begins, you know, with him and his son and him telling him to, to sort of abandon his childhood because he's now, what, oh, like yeah. six or seven? Yeah. <laughs> Which is so funny because that's so young. But he, he basically, you know robs his son of his childhood and then of course his son wants to commit revenge later so i don't know if mm. like he mm. okay. i don't i don't know if this is some sort of you know his way of dealing with those with his past mm. or what but it seems pretty open you know open-hearted about that i didn't catch on to that but yeah that makes a lot of sense when you put it that way do you think justin is working out uh, some daddy issues by being on this podcast i think so yeah can i call you guys my two dads <laughs> We are two dads, Justin. That's how we're going <laughs> to introduce ourselves from now on. But yeah, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I could be misinterpreting it, but it just feels... I don't know. I guess that, that'll lead me to another question is, uh, are we supposed to think that the gunslinger is a righteous and just person? That's a good question. Uh, and, and just like yeah. to, to top off like father-son thing, the father-son dynamic between El Topo and the child... And then the the eventual mm -hmm. adult gunslinger was something that I latched onto, but I, I couldn't really assign any meaning to. But that was def mm -hmm. definitely something that interested me a lot. The, the, when we t find out that his son is an adult later on in the movie, and that he mm -hmm. was um was he a a priest guy? Yeah. So when you last see the son, he's left with the the priests that he El Topo saved from the colonel. There was that group of oh he did. There was that group of priests that was there. Right. Right. That was the last scene the son was in? Right. So he left. He abandoned his son to ride off with the blonde chick. God, I missed that. Like 10 minutes later, I'm like, wait, where's the son? I just <laughs> yeah. totally missed it. I mean, so that was quite a plot twist when we find out that his son is grown now. And so that, in fact, he has been meditating for years upon years. Yeah. But as I said, could not penetrate into that any further. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's funny. You just saying that just, just made me realize that I guess they both we're meditating for years and years, right? Because you can only assume mm. that the son is some sort of monk. Yeah. Uh, uh -huh. Or maybe or maybe a priest. I, I don't remember if they specify, but... Oh, that just made me think of something. So, like, I don't know if it's going to go anywhere, but, like, while the father was engaged in this very Zen-like Eastern tradition of meditation, the son was growing up in a religious context as well judeo-christian so yeah. they, they kind of branched off into completely different like religious directions and then met back together discuss christianity versus buddhism who's gonna win <laughs> ding 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 <laughs> well so i mean so then that leads me to the question does uh does yodorowsky see a difference between those two like what what are the differences between you know older bald gunslinger and grown son it seems to be like two sides of the same coin in Yodorowsky's yeah. eyes. I think that I, I don't really ascribe to this interpretation of it anymore, but since we're on the subject of like the sun and like their dynamic and what that means. Early on, El Topo refers to himself as God. Mm. And I think that, you know, at the very beginning of this movie, I was trying to just analyze it way too much than what I should have. And I'm fresh off of like killing of a sacred deer. So I think I was looking for some like who's god in this movie uh, -huh. uh so, sort of uh, 
meaning. And so I, I immediately took that to be like, okay, like that's God. And then when his son is abandoned and becomes a priest and then like kind of returns later as a very kind of Jesus looking dude and also somehow represents Christianity in a way I meant right I took that to mean like he was Jesus and El Topo was God I don't really give any water to that after seeing the whole thing and doing more research and watching it again but that was like my first glance at that whole dynamic was some sort of like trinity yeah I just like that to follow off on like him calling himself God that didn't really seem to carry through to any other part of the movie. It seemed like in retrospect, just like a, like a cocky comment about himself right right before he castrated somebody. Right. So at the time he said it, he was definitely like in a, a strong position to like proclaim himself as some kind of a Mephitist, uh, strong guy. In like to show like how he changes throughout the movie. One other review that I watched pointed out that he says i'm god early on kind of in his like black cowboy half of the movie and then right when he wakes up in the cave um after having meditated for a long time he says i'm not a god i am a man Mm. and so there is a direct duality there between those two halves of the movie okay i'm now just kind of realizing like how symmetrical the movie is in that way like there's a lot of inverse imagery from point a to point b you're right yeah, especially the the cut to the cave, you know, the transition from the desert to the cave is so interesting just visually. It's the I think the movie does a good job of it is I see the symmetrical structure, but I think he does a good job of sort of making the second half of the movie feel different in many ways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I do think it emphasizes just like it's I don't know, like the redemption of the character. Because like I said, I don't know if we're ultimately supposed to think that he was ever just or correct or ah, righteous. Right. But I do think uh-huh. that. But I don't know. He, I think he's redeemed at the end. Do you think so? Maybe, maybe that's a good way to get into that question is like, how do you see the ending? The way I interpreted the ending was like his character could not have failed in a more complete way. Like, even after his redemption of waking up in the cave and trying to do good by these people, it all ends in everybody dying anyways, and him returning to his violent ways, which you thought he had cast aside. Mm -hmm. So by the end of it, I'm like, yeah, this guy definitely just, like, nothing went right for him. I think that entirely depends on if you think that the killing of the town, like, of arguably evil people is justified. Yeah. So if you don't, then, uh, yeah, you're right. But if you do think they deserve to die, then he is a righteous character. So it just kind of hinges on. But aside aside from that as well, it's the the death of the people that he was trying to free is what I'm referring to specifically. Oh, okay. Because it was him trying to build. Or, it was out of his control. Well, he directly caused it, right? He's the one that was digging those tunnels. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. that is what they escaped through and then like immediately died at the hands of the townspeople. Okay. Yeah, I mean, if you really wanted to get into it, you could say that this was maybe Hodorowski's like uh, argument against I don't know interventionism, <laughs> political interventionism. <laughs> okay. But I, I don't know if that's the case. I, I do know that he ascribes to some pretty like pacifist views, um, but I don't know beyond that what his political leanings are. I assume mm-hmm. they're. I assume he's some sort of leftist revolutionary, but I couldn't tell you for sure. It, it does. I think you're right, though. He. I mean, he he murders these people, and really, would they have been any better outside of their cave? Yeah, I don't know. They they wanted out, I guess. They they talk about how they had tried escaping, and it was just too difficult. But, right, right. 
mm-hmm. I don't know. And so just to put a little finer point on what I said earlier, in my eyes, he failed on two fronts. He failed in saving the people that he was, you know, vouching for, the, the cave people, CP. Cave people. <laughs> but then he also failed because, like, at least is how I took it, he had renounced violence when he woke up again in the cave, but then he ended up killing everybody. So, like, he failed to be that transformed, passive, nonviolent person, and he also failed to save the people. Yeah, so do you think that that's... And this is totally a rhetorical question. Do you think that that is Yodorowsky like moralizing? What What do you think he's trying to say with that failure? What do you think he's trying to say that he should not have done, or what was the mistake that the gunslinger made that earned him this failure? Yeah, you got me there. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, that's totally. <laughs> I don't know either. Huh, Trevor? I I mean, like <laughs> Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> well, according to some of the research that I did, and really quick note on that what i found was really interesting is upon trying to analyze this movie and then like finding an article that told me to not analyze it and that was the whole point Uh that the wikipedia page for this movie is like shockingly small like i don't know if you've looked it up raul i know it's a thing that you do with movies but like it basically is a plot summary a controversy about the rape scene how it was received and then like other iterations in media and references and shit like that yeah i see what you mean but it's just like for the amount of shit that we're we're talking about and trying to unpack here it's just like ununderstandably small yeah that is a little surprising uh but one other thing that i was looking at was talking about how the whole reason that he went on the quest to fight the other masters was at the solicitation of the um, the female that he picks up and therefore uh, he's like very resistant to the idea of going on this quest and fighting all of these masters and it was just her i don't i didn't pick up on that really at all like as her being some sort of temptress with forcing him to do this yeah I, there were a couple of shots of her saying like oh i would love you she she said like do you love me uh-huh. he said yes and she's like oh i would love you if you were like the best i think i was like really put off by the sort of the violence against women early on in this movie and so i was just like giving her like all of the credit like, yeah, was not seen as any sort of problematic character to me. Yeah, that stuff's hard to watch. Totally a victim. But if that were the case, that if, if she was like forcing him to do this stuff, you know, when he has his breakdown after killing the final master, it would indicate that he regretted doing all of that. So maybe his largest mistake was going on the quest at all. And that was that was the failure that brought about the end of the movie. Yeah. So do you think he just should not have ever... <laughs> I don't think he should have been in that desert. He should yeah. have turned his horse around at the beginning of the movie, taking that umbrella right back to Tim Burton. Put down the umbrella, man, and walk away. Put some clothes on that kid. Let him keep his teddy bear. And yeah. I brought up the umbrella, and that makes me want to talk a little bit more about like imagery, like taking all of like yeah. analysis and interpretation out of the equation, just like strictly like imagery, like what you guys enjoyed. Yeah. I, I love the imagery of the fighter that he killed, that, the guy that didn't feel the bullets. That didn't feel the bullets? Yeah, the guy that the bullets passed right through him. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ponytail guy. Yeah, yeah. but when they, they show a shot of him in his grave towards the end, and mm-hmm. he's just like in a, a square grave dug into the desert sand, right. and he's covered in honeycombs and honey. And bees. 
and bees. And I don't know why that shot is like so cool to me. The bees returned at the end too. Yeah, I don't know yeah. why. The whole like honeycomb thing was like a real striking image to me. It felt very horror movie. Like I yeah got a lot of Ari Aster out of that. Yeah, that or uh, Candyman. Candyman harnesses the bee imagery like nobody's business. And I and I thought I thought that movie had done it the best. But then watching this again, I I do think there's something about just a arriving mass of bees that's so i don't know primally touches something inside of you you know it feels kind of like i mean when you it's not very obvious that it's bees i think right off the bat you could almost see it as like flies on your first glance and that is like typical of a corpse as being covered in a writhing body of flies but i think oh, it, that's true there's yeah. some sort of like like hyper creative element or symbolism associated with just making it bees and honey instead of flies i was just i you know it's it's funny we bring this up because i was just reading about this like uh oh i forget who the artist was but this this certain artist has a has a preoccupation with these natural movements specifically this person was talking about the way fire moves these like organic movement you know the way fire moves or the way water moves uh-huh. um, i think david lynch has similar fascinations with like uh curtains like curtains yeah the the way that in the opening credits for twin peaks the return he has this haunting image of it sounds so basic but it's just these red curtains that are flowing and it's so there's just something about it and i think there's something with that yeah writhing teeming mass of bees that just feels otherworldly man i picked a good shot then yeah if i got all that out of it i'm I'm glad i brought that up Mm -hmm. (laughs) is there something imagery wise justin that you really enjoyed or struck you yeah the i think the thing that comes to mind first is the deformed people in the cave that are sleeping in what appear to be barrels yeah yeah there's just something about that image and the way they're i you know that you walk the tricky line when you talk about this kind of stuff because of course that's so exploitative and i'm sure i don't know if you know there's i think there's a crying child in that scene and who knows if he was crying for good reasons but That still, I mean, the the image is haunting, and there's just something about it that's so evocative. Yeah, the sound design in that scene, and also like the the opening scene with the massacre, really like got under my skin. Because in the opening scene, when he comes across the uh, massacred town, it's like really loud, like piercing sounds of like buzzards or crows or something. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. And there's like kind of a similar like piercingness to like that crying child in the scene that Justin just described, where it's just like yeah. a really like uncomfortable, like penetrative sound. And then I, I would say that that happens once more when El Topo has his freak out and like goes to the graves of all of the, the masters that he's killed. And what sounds like a swarm of like bees is like the uh, the audio track during all of that i mean like I, I don't know if that's actually what the sound is but like it sounds like some sort of like swarming insect to me like throughout that whole part and it's just it almost sounds like music i don't know there's something going on with those three scenes in particular that is really unsettling and it kind of hurts my ears yeah you know on that note i don't know for sure what the sound is that the fortune teller is making when she is dying Oh yeah, it's like a kind of this like chirping. Like... Yeah, yeah, it's an animal noise, uh-huh. uh, which is 
a, a super cool. Mm-hmm. There's an interesting thing with sound all over this movie because I mean, like, there's several characters that kind of have gender swapped voices. So the uh, yeah, the black kind of de- female doppelganger to El Topo that shows up like one third in that ultimately like steals his woman or whatever. She has a male voice. And then there's a character, like one of the bourgeois characters in that town later on in the movie has a male voice, but clearly a female. Yeah. I believe Justin Long is also female voiced. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Who were we talking about that Elto, or uh, Yodorowsky looks like in this movie? Jason. Um, what's his name? The comedy Manzoukas. guy. Yeah. Jason Manzukis. Manzukis, yeah. Yeah, totally really funny and i think we all like were on that same wavelength at the same time watching when we were watching this movie like it happened at a specific moment in time we were like this looks like jason menzukas yeah both both you and chris like had him uh-huh everybody had thought of it at the same time yeah yeah my wife walked in and made the comment she she hadn't even been watching the movie it's it's so apparent that this is just jason menzukas uh 40 years earlier jason menzukas like bases his whole image off of this movie <laughs> He's like, I'm going to be like, I'm just got to look like Alejandro Jodorowsky in this movie. And I can, I guess you could do worse. I want to comment. How cool does Jodorowsky look in this movie in the first half? I think he looks like what every cool cowboy looks like from the knees up, but from the knees down, it's just like that. But in the seventies knees down, what's going on with the knees? He's got some super (laughs) bell bottom fucking pants in this movie, dude. Oh yeah. Like, (laughs) Those pants, like, you can only wear those in the time that this movie was released and, like, <laughs> still be considered a cowboy. It's like a cone. That, like, honestly, that kills the outfit for me. It are those, like, bell-bottom <laughs> pants. Just, like, places it in time too much for me. How strange that nowadays our jeans taper the other way. Yeah. Tight, tight fit jeans. It goes back and forth, I think. I think he... Yodorowsky makes no bones about, like... Uh, I think he really likes sort of goofy tangents in his movies. He's not afraid to be super scatological or uh, just over the top slapsticky. And I think there were moments like this in that in this movie. Uh-huh. Uh, do you? How do you? What do you think about those? I mean, let's say for example, uh, the way that the bad guys are acting at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. When you yeah. said when you said slapstick, that was the first thing that came to mind. Was that scene with? Yeah, the guys going crazy on their horses, and then later on are like pretending to ride like dead iguanas. Yeah, uh-huh. just like for me is like the most ridiculous part of the movie and most funny. Yeah. So, do you think that augments the movie? Do you think it adds to it, or do you think it's it's sort of like a diversion from the movie's central message or themes? It must be a diversion from a central theme that we cannot identify. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Does, I guess I should say, does it feel out of place? Does it feel like you're watching it and saying this has nothing to do with the movie? Or do you think it's sort of part of his overall vision? Because I I kind of think it, it is part of his vision. I don't know how, but I do think that it's intentional. You know, I do think that he really wanted to go over the top with this stuff. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think that the for, for me, it didn't feel out of place. I think that all of my preparation for this movie in listening to Yudorowsky and like, listening to other people talk about Yudorowsky, it seems that he's got a sense of humor. And so I don't think that he necessarily wants to be super serious and artful in all of his stuff. I think that there's a place for humor in it, dumb humor even. 
but I think even more than that, his uh, his way of doing it in these first couple scenes like seem kind of on brand to me. Yeah, it's also early enough in the movie that you you kind of like take whatever he gives you and just take it at face value. Although, like in the context of the whole movie, they do seem out of place in hindsight, at least tonally. Mm-hmm. I think that's right, and I think I kind of wonder if it's it's maybe not even supposed to be funny, but it's supposed to portray these people in certain a certain light you know um so maybe we're not supposed to laugh at them even if they're being foolish we're supposed to it's it's like character color okay um but i don't know i thought it was fucking funny well the balloon (laughs) still makes me laugh the balloon made me laugh the first time and it made me laugh again i think that like the balloon for me was very disarming like i think it allowed me to jive with this movie like more than what i thought i was capable of in the beginning like yeah i don't know if this was yodorowsky's intention at all but based on everything i've heard from him it sounds like he wants people to just be affected by his movie in some way and like has a very welcoming attitude about people watching his movies like he seems to like kanye west which is not what i would do if i was in his position he's read his fortune so a pretty sympathetic guy and i think that having funny stuff like that towards the beginning was at least like a an effective way to let me be a little bit more open to the movie in the beginning it's definitely much more like accessible those scenes Mm -hmm. also like one of the only scenes in the movie that actually like makes use of more traditional music yeah Mm -hmm. like remember the only times that they play any real music is like those funny scenes and it's kind of like slapsticky yeah Stacy made the comment, my partner, that those scenes kind of reminded her of like 30s silent film comedies, like silly slapstick comedies. Yeah, that's totally what's going on there. And I think that like Yodorowsky has roots in like the circus mm. and that's, you know, uh, resembles kind of that vaudevillian slapsticky comedy. Like think of like clowns, like in traditional circuses or rodeo clowns. I think that because of his roots in that, that that sort of imagery and acting, I have this in my notes actually, makes its way into this movie and I think also Holy Mountain, where it's, I don't know what it's like doing for the movie, but it just kind of seems like a nod to his past or his like origin in comedy in some way. It's almost like this movie doesn't allow him to flex his circus background as much as he could. I mean, that's what his, like what was the the other movie you were just talking about, Justin? yeah yeah for sure and holy mountain has a little bit of it too but i you know it's funny he's we're talking about how surprisingly old he is i guess he's old enough to have as a child attended uh late vaudeville and you know circus sideshow acts Mm -hmm. whereas someone like david lynch who i think is a an easy comparison isn't and in fact he's probably i think david lynch like mourns for that kind of lifestyle but yeah. knowing Jodorowsky he probably and and his like mind background and stuff he probably lived it yeah you know to a certain degree kind of a time traveler in that way like that dude's from a whole different world than most yeah. people that's true For sure. I could be totally wrong so I I just want to say this is speculation I could just have picked up a biography and spoken at greater length about him more truthfully but you were talking about music a second ago Raul kind of in those early scenes I also feel like that's pretty close to only a handful of times where it uses traditional editing I think the editing in this movie is really interesting from scene to scene where sometimes it just 
it just does not abide by any sort of normal editing techniques. Like it doesn't, it doesn't give a shit about like how much time is supposed to have passed. It's just showing you these very quick snapshots of the plot. I think about that uh, when he kills Justin Long, like that whole sequence. Yeah. Like it's the editing is so erratic and does communicate something, but definitely not in the traditional like Hollywood style. And so it's kind of disorienting, but you still kind of get what's going on. Yeah. And it's a tough thing to explain. Like you just need to watch it, but it's it's not editing that we're used to. No, it'd probably get like a C plus by today's standards of like movie editing and transitioning between scenes. But that's the point, I think. You know, Raul, that that leads me to another question, which is how do you think this movie would be received today if it were to come out? It's so hard to, to answer. Yeah. Because the movie wouldn't look like the same way. Right. Mm. Well, you know, I kind of just, I don't feel like a movie like this, and, I, and again, David Lynch is another easy comparison, but it's true. He's so, like, open emotionally, and he he even though his his symbolism may be obscure, he's still... It's still like he's very open-hearted mm-hmm. in how he makes movies. And I feel like that that kind of stuff just isn't as common nowadays. And it, I think it it's ridiculed to a certain degree. Someone who's so transparent about his feelings. I don't know. It, it I feel like this movie would be laughed at today if it were to come out. Yeah. You know, maybe it looks, maybe it looks more modern and contemporary, but the emotions and the themes, if they were still the same, I think it would be kind of ridiculed it's so much harder to be the kind of director Yodorowsky or Lynch are I think now because I think that industry is so tainted by commercialism even more so than what either of those dudes have had to deal with at like the peak of their careers that it, it would almost just be I, I think that people like this are few and far between like in the movie making world just because of how commercialized it is now to answer the question on a with a little bit finer tip I think that because of the rape thing alone, this movie would be canceled immediately. For yeah. sure. <laughs> That's no question. I don't think it would make pa- make it past stage one. Yeah, or it's just, it's. I mean, especially that, but in general, it's treatment of women. Yeah. Which it does, I think we talked about this earlier, but especially the woman at the beginning has sort of an Eve quality to her. Yeah. The, like temptress. Yeah. Who uh, instigates, you know, these this domino, you know, follow-up events. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I forgot that Eve did that. I was thinking Lady Macbeth. Yeah, Eve definitely pissed <laughs> well, sure. Sure. <laughs> Billy, Billy Shakespeare wasn't afraid of that uh, trope either, I guess. Billy Shakespeare. I've never heard that. That's what we writers call him. It's an inside thing. Don't, don't steal it. <laughs> <laughs> the whole, I think he's the fifth ma- master or fourth, the old guy with the butterfly net. <laughs> yeah. Like, felt like a real, like, anime-esque character to me. (laughs) You guys get that, what I'm saying there? Yeah. There's, like, the whole thing where he's, like, effortlessly dodging his hand attacks, unarmed attacks, and he's, like, laughing. Like, that's, like, an... It's laughing. That's a total, like, anime thing, right? It's, like, so much better than the other guy. They're just, like, laughing and effortlessly dodging shit. Yeah. Delivering these scathing... Uh, remarks to the gunslinger right and like somehow the butterfly net also seems to be on brand in that way too like and he's using it to deflect bullets it all feels so like anime to me definitely 
I mean, that whole trope about, like, the master... Like, there's always, like, that master character in anime. Uh-huh. And then the lead protagonist has to go meet him and train. I mean, he's the last one, right? So that makes... That that fits with, like, video game logic, too. He's, like, the last boss. Yeah. Like, he's the craziest one. And the only one that he, like, didn't defeat, ultimately. Right. Which is mm-hmm. right. also one of my favorite scenes from the movie when that the fourth master is just like uh what were they saying there's like oh you can't take anything from me he's and el topo is like i'll take your life and he's like uh-huh. oh life i don't care about that see boom dead uh-huh. like two seconds later and you're like oh shit that was out of nowhere right that's great i think there's a lot of clever moments like that in this movie one of my favorite lines in the movie is is when they're he's sort of drawing in the sand and he's saying the circle is a desert and the only way to get to them is by going in a spiral. Mm. There's just something so evocative about that line. I don't know. It's, you know, it means so much and it means nothing at all at the same time. And I think Yodorowsky mm-hmm. is so good at, at that kind of stuff, which again goes back to the tarot thing. You're just reading into it, but it feels like it says a lot. Mm-hmm. What do you guys think of that church scene? Oh, yeah. That was also a really cool one I wanted to talk about yeah, too. That's one of my favorites. When they're passing around the gun yeah yeah that was so cool i really enjoyed like all of that scene like start to finish because it opens up with them like doing that hyper coordinated chant they're saying like the lord will protect us or something Uh uh-huh yeah and everybody's like clapping in unison but in a really like robotic bizarre kind of way and it seems to be i mean this is how i read it poking fun at judeo-christian just traditions and just like that whole business of singing in, in unison and how bizarre that looks sure a call and response uh-huh and so i i just and en- enjoyed that whole imagery of uh, the synchronized clapping but then it gets turned up when uh the russian roulette starts like that's already like a crazy thing to watch and then jesus or Iho, i think is the character's name according to the credits which is el topo's son shows up and does like the most badass thing he's like i take takes the gun and the guy's like don't worry it's a blank like you'll be safe gets rid of the blank and pulls out a real bullet puts it in the gun not just takes out a real bullet but just grabs it from a random person in the crowd like everybody's wearing (laughs) headbands of bullets belts of bullets you just you just grab it out of nowhere remember in mad max there's like a a set or like a place that's called like the bullet farm oh yeah so these people must have been bullet farming plays russian roulette and wins one other person plays it and wins and then a child shoots themselves in the in the head. Yeah. I was just watching that scene again. Right before they start doing the Russian roulette, there's like a good three second shot of that kid that ends up killing himself uh-huh. when they're clapping, like when they're in the middle of the clap chant. Yeah, I noticed that. And then he's not clapping, but then like the mother kind of like eggs him on and then he starts. When they were clapping, I just looked at him as like a kid that like barely even knew that he was on a movie set. It's, like, hard for me to watch, like, children in movies, especially older movies, and not just, like, not see them as real people. Like, yeah. I, can, I can't really see them as actors. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, I don't know. This, I, I think this is probably my favorite scene, and I think it's because the metaphor is so, it's an obvious, you know, metaphor, but it's so elegant, and uh, just it, it just hits you so, so hard, you know, especially when the kid kills himself. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think the metaphor is, Justin? I would say it, I would say it's probably 
I don't know, just the the violence that a lot of modern day Christianity and Catholicism seems to traffic in. Oh, okay. Which I know sounds like the sort of the abstract for the worst grad paper ever, but <laughs> but really I think that's that's kind of the to me it's that's the obvious one where it's like the religion is is violence and eventually it's going to I don't know your children <laughs> i just took it to mean that like the right religion prevails like when jesus puts the bullet in the gun like it doesn't fire <laughs> yeah i'm totally i'm totally kidding uh you guys okay. are, <laughs> just Rob was like looking at me weird what like that's what you got out of that how to read it when it's him coming in and and doing the if you just like watch that scene under the guise of like that just being like cool macho Jesus, like it reads a lot different and funny. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if Alejandro sees Jesus as a figure who was ultimately righteous, but led a, a movement that wasn't. So mm-hmm. in that way, I'm sure it could, it could very well be Jesus doing, <laughs> doing the right thing. Yeah. I wonder what his, uh, his views on Christianity are. I get the feeling that they may be a little bit anti-critical little critical i mean i would think that anybody who like practices buddhism in the 60s would be anti-judeo-christian yeah that's what i'm assuming just by default yeah in his uh in that interview with darren aronofsky aronofsky asked him if he believes in jesus or (laughs) sorry in god and uh yodorowsky says well i don't believe in god but i know him Mm mm-hmm so I think he's well-versed in the language of Christianity and maybe the tenets, but not necessarily, I don't know, not a, ascribes to them. Not a fan. Yeah. Not a fan of the old uh, the old big man up there. <laughs> <laughs> I got a few quotes here from an interview that I had, or that I watched with Yodorowsky that I, th- that I really liked. I, I'd love to read this, these if I could. Okay, Raul, give it to me. Okay. I write the script so I have money. Then I do what I want. <laughs> okay, you do one now. I'm not doing the, the accent. I hated no. the way I, sound, I sounded last night. Pictures are, sto- are not stories. They are images, color. There's one more. Pictures are art for the museum. I really enjoyed those. There's some good quotes, Trevor. I, well, I think that this whole movie is much more of like performance art than it is regular old film art and maybe that's like actually more pure film if you depending on like what you accept as like true filmmaking and like what the intention of uh, that medium is in the first place but i it helped me really digest this movie a little bit more is that quote that it's just he sees film filmmaking as something a little bit higher than a lot of other people ascribe to it he sees it as a higher art than it really really is to most people Mm-hmm. And so, like, saying pictures are art for the museum and they're not for the theater, I think, is, like, the second half of that quote, I think, says a lot about what he what he thinks, like, the purpose of film is or what the purpose of any of his films are. And it's really not what most people use film for. Mm-hmm. I write the script so I have money, I do then I do what I want. That was in direct reference to, like, uh, El Topo. Because at Q&A, they were asking him, like, what did, like, did you have a script? Like, what was the deal with the script? And he's like, I wrote the script so I could sell it to a studio. But after that, it was, like, my thing. And he said that that paved the way for Holy Mountain. They would not give me the money if I did not turn into them pages with words. 
the way I think I understood it from all the research that I've been doing is that, uh, you know, John Lennon kind of like bought and distributed um, El Topo with the help of the Beatles manager. But then uh, after that, you know, they gave him some funding to do his next project, which was Holy Mountain. Then when that came out, they didn't like it. And like the manager abandoned him. Is that a correct reading of that? You guys know what I'm talking about? Uh, the Beatles? Yeah. So like the the, Be- the Beatles manager like gave him funding for Holy Mountain and then like they mm-hmm. hated it. And so they pulled out. Well, I think they were supposed to be in it, right? Am I, do you, did you read about that no. at all? Am I correct? John Lennon? I thought I remember the Beatles supposed they were supposed to be in it, so maybe they were um, just bitter. But oh, yeah, I don't know. That was what nineteen seventy. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I did. I really like that clip from uh, that like video we showed about Yodorovsky on YouTube. It's very very helpful. It was really good. Uh, but they showed that clip of John Lennon talking about it, talking about El Topo like at a Beatles press conference with a very mm-hmm. bored looking Paul McCartney next to him, like could not care less. That was such a cool scene just to see that like somebody as like huge John Lennon, 1970s, fresh off, you know, the entire Beatles career talking about mm-hmm. this obscure, weird movie. Do you think if this is something I was wondering about, do you think if like John Lennon hadn't done that, that Yodorowsky would be the same guy or like the same icon in cinema as he is right now i don't know justin um maybe not i don't know i guess i'm not familiar with i know john lennon was a fan but i'm not familiar with how much he was responsible for like propagating yodorowsky's art my impression was that like that was the reason like yodorowsky like became big was because john lennon like distributed el topo I mean, you need that, you know. Mm-hmm. David Lynch had Mel Brooks and Stanley Kubrick as his two biggest fans. So I guess if you have those, like, outspoken, big-name activists, then you can go on to do great things. So yeah. who knows? I mean, uh, uh, it's funny, though, because I wouldn't say that Yodorowsky has achieved that level of, I guess you could say, monetary or even cultural success, because even though he seems to have obviously stayed afloat and he's continued to make art and work Uh, i wouldn't necessarily say he's like a household name yeah in the way that someone like david lynch is who remains a countercultural and art house figure but sort of has also crossed over yeah i think that uh because of his lack of notoriety in the mainstream is like what makes yodorowsky like the ultimate version of that counterculture dude like he if he were to become successful, he could no longer be Yodorowsky. Yeah. They would cancel each other out. Sure. I think so. I think you're right. And I think he's also like, he's stuck to his guns in that way. I think he's not <laughs> sold out. Um, maybe it's just because he hasn't had the opportunity to, but I think if he had done Dune, that probably would have been his biggest. Wasn't in the tarot. Into Hollywood, but yeah. it didn't happen. Yeah. Man, that would have been yeah. so cool to watch his Dune movie with like a full yeah. Hollywood blockbuster budget <laughs> with Salvador Dali and Orson Welles. Yeah. What are you, uh, yeah. I got, I got a subject to broach. Okay. Kind of a, something we haven't really tackled so far. What do you think about the movie as like an overall movie watching experience rated on that, that watchability scale Oh yeah. that we like uh, to use? I think that us talking about this movie early on is something experimental and kind of on the fringes of, underground 
cinema, especially from this time period, it's something I think you need to be warned about. <laughs> yeah. Before watching it, I swear to God, like I invited a couple more people, and I think they just like peaced out because <laughs> they were too weirded out by it. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure like Chris just like left. <laughs> You know what? I was so curious to hear Chris's take on the movie, and I'm sad to I'm sad to hear that he probably won't have one. <laughs> but anyways, like I think you need to be warned about this movie. I think that if you know what you're getting into, it's actually extremely watchable because, as we've talked about, like this movie seems to be more visual and metaphorical spectacle than it is like actual I don't know messages deserving of analysis. And so I, I feel like I just want to let the movie glaze over me a little bit more than I want to try and figure it out. And mm. for that reason, I think it gets a pretty good watchability score. But that's with the caveat of like, you need to understand what this movie is prior. Yeah, you definitely need to warn somebody about it. Uh-huh. This is not just like a, a movie recommendation you can make like. Which I didn't do a good job of like for our, our screening this week. It's like, hey guys, do you like do you like Juno from last week? Come on down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I'll say this: I, I, I'm never bored by it, and I think I think these kinds of movies can, even if they're veering into maybe high art, they're they're boring, <laughs> or they can be boring. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm never bored by it. I think it's often funny. Uh, it's always intellectually engaging or just interesting to look at. Even when the, I don't know what's happening, I still sort of enjoy looking at it. And so, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it's very watchable. Yeah. And now I'm going to end a little bit on a, a little bit more of a critical note, go a little bit against the grain here. I think that the watchability of this movie could be called into question a little bit. Okay. Give me a reason for that. I, and I can't really speak to this very well, but I think it's just purely based on like movie making technicals. Like I feel like if somebody could have cut this piece, this movie together in a way that maybe flowed a little bit better, that okay. it, so many of the cuts just are so jarring and uh, confused me and kind of like took me out of it. Yeah. Like his movies make really good montages. Mm-hmm. That YouTube video that we referenced before, like the 20 minute one. Yeah, looks beautiful because of all the shots that they collate together from his movies, and and yeah, so so he's like a very visionary filmmaker. All of the sets and the scenes are really nice to look at, but uh-huh. maybe it's the transitions between the scenes that I feel like is a little bit lacking. You bring up such an interesting point that makes sense, but I haven't really thought about a ton. Is like his movie is like cut like a montage. Like, there are moments of, like, regular traditional editing, but, like, the editing style and kind of those disorienting moments that I referenced earlier is very, like, montage-like. So, Mm -hmm. I I think I watched another video that was, like, this is an unedited portion of the movie because it would otherwise be interpreted as, like, a a secondary editor making a montage or, like, a highlight reel of the movie. But, like, that's just how his movies are. Mm -hmm. Huh. That's cool. Yeah, so I, I couldn't quite like um. What did you say? Like, wa- let it wash over you. Like, yeah. I I would like it to be able to wash over me better, because I have no problem with watching abstract films, and I have no problem not being able to follow the plot if that's what they're going for. But just like as a technical movie, 
I feel like maybe he could have done a little bit better. Like I was very aware that this was like a very uh, low budget. Ultimately, he was like an amateur at this point, right? I don't think he's quite as seasoned as he is now Mm -hmm. or probably even as he was in the Holy Mountain, which I look forward to looking at. Well, I don't know. I think that like what you're what you're describing as like inexperienced familiarity with editing and pacing and like that being the result of this type of editing, I just don't think like works. I think that there are plenty of people like in the industry even then to understand like what appropriate like pacing and editing techniques to use to make something digestible and I think that every party involved in this movie like understood that and deliberately went against it mm-hmm. so not not to say that it makes it more or less watchable but i i don't think that it's like in a result of uh Yodorowsky's inexperience yeah and that's fair maybe try and like bring it full circle for me and the listeners where having experienced all all of that and seeing el topo once again like what are your kind of parting thoughts i'd say my parting thoughts in the movie um <laughs> I don't know, man. You know what? I, I I still enjoyed it this time around. I I never know with these kinds of viewings if I'm going to feel positive about the movie again. Um, and I think I I think I do. I'm no less enlightened on the movie, but overall, it was a I don't know. It was a great viewing experience. I liked it. I liked it a lot. Wonderful. And he honestly, Yodorowsky, he was kind of a fox back then. So good for him. Yeah, that's my last thought. I was pretty unaware of uh, Yodorowsky prior to like, I don't know, four or five months ago. And Justin brought uh, brought him to my attention through another movie that we watched that seemed to reference him. I think that I expected a total, almost undigestible piece of art and not, and not a traditional movie like we've watched on this podcast before. So I think it met and exceeded my expectations in that way. I think doing all of the research around it and how like futile that was, was like an experience in and of itself. Um, and I think that ultimately all this makes me want to do is just watch Holy Mountain because I think I've come to respect the way that uh, Yodorowsky makes art and it sounds like Holy Mountain is like a better reflection of him as an artist than this is. Thank you. Great. Um, yeah, but for mine, like, I really enjoyed rewatching this movie. I first watched it when I lived with you, Trevor. I was going through a little kick of watching, like, a lot of Spanish surrealist cinema from, like, 50s or 60s. And I was watching stuff like The Exterminating Angel and Simon of the Desert, stuff like that. I think, think aesthetically of people like Dolly. And now mm-hmm. Alejandro Jodorowsky is all kind of being in this this weird circle. But I really enjoyed rewatching it. I think I actually caught on to a little bit more stuff this time around. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I definitely look forward to running through more of his catalog. Mm-hmm. Was this the only movie that all of us ha- have seen of Jodorowsky's? I've seen the, his most recent one. I think it's his most recent, The Dance of Reality. Okay. And Justin? Yeah, I've only seen this in Holy Mountain. Okay, cool. So we're pretty, like, uh, green to Yodorowsky's work collectively. So what would you uh, rate this movie? 
Um, man, so many objects to choose from for the rating system. First yeah. of all, I will give this movie, you know, in light of how experimental it is and all all the rest, eight and a half headband with bullets in it out of 10. That's great. I'm going to give this nine because I think this opened me up to a whole new genre of filmmaking. Maybe not. I mean, I knew what David Lynch was, but I think that this makes me excited to dive deep into a new director in my life. So it gets a lot of points for that. And for that, I am going to give it a nine and a half iguanas out of 10. So we're going to try to do the outro this week with Justin is with us. So Trevor and I are going to be reading off a script. Justin, you don't have that script in front of you. So maybe just try to jump in wherever you can. If you see a space, you take it. Yeah, I'm game. Okay. Okay. All right. Here we go. Thanks for listening this week. Our music is by W. Look him up at at W on Instagram. That's an underscore, the word double, and two letter U's. Rad. Our special guest this week is Justin. Justin, introduce. What's the opposite of introduce? Outroduce. See you later, I'm Justin. (laughs) Thanks for coming along. Wherever you're listening, give us give us a good rating. Connect with us at, at Film Hill Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks again. We'll see you next week. Oh, we did it! <laughs> you saw a space and you took it. I saw a hole and I took it. <laughs>